Uh, anyway, guys, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 20 tonight. It's a short little chapter, uh, but enough in here to, to spend the whole time talking about it. And the title is Warfare. Warfare. And to put it simply, that's what the chapter is about. It's about warfare. It's basically a manual on warfare for the people of God. And so when the Jews would enter Canaan, they were not, they were not sightseers. They were soldiers. A sightseer is one who goes to a location on vacation and just enjoys the view. Right? I have a friend now who is in London, and the pictures are just amazing. Him and his family, they're thoroughly enjoying themselves. Uh, vaca- vacations and getaways, they're definitely not bad. And I'd say, take time away. We need to take time away once in a while to rest and relax. But there are many places to get away to. Yosemite, Grand Canyon, many, of, many people around here go to Smoky Mountains. I still want to go there one day. I heard it's amazing. But there's no exertion on your part, unless you go on a hike or something. But when we, when we were in Vegas, you know, for Thanksgiving uh, at the in-laws' house, we went to Red Rock and, and went our, on our annual hike. And I love looking up at the mountains, the landscape, God's creation, you know, seeing the beautiful sights, uh, you know, of God's creation. The only work I did was with a GoPro, attempting to capture it with the amazingness of it all. But unlike a sightseer, you know, a soldier trains, prepares, and does all they can to get ready for what is ahead. And, you know, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so a soldier in a spiritual war, as soldiers, we are to always be armed and ready for battle. You know, in Deuteronomy, the Israelites were to be battle-ready. And the second generation were so different than the first in that the, the first didn't enter the land, we know, because of fear, of, of timidity, of anxiety. Ten were afraid, which led to fleeing rather than a bold entrance. You know, there are those who see a fire and flee. You know, they just run away. They run the other way. You know, then there are those who see a fire and they run towards it to see what they can do to help, to see if there's anyone that can be saved. Joseph, or, uh, not Joseph, Joshua and Caleb, they were the latter, and that's what we are to be. Never let anxiety stop you from following your calling that your almighty God has for you. So that this second generation, they would listen to the Lord, actually, and take the land that was promised to them. And God's people would enter the land knowing if they obeyed, they'd have victory no matter how bad the opposition was was, no matter how bad it looked. You know, victory happens when we fully trust the Lord. So there were two different strategies for the children of Israel that, that, were, that were laid out by the Lord. One strategy was to go in, uh, go for the cities inside of Canaan, verse 1 to 9. The other strategy was for the cities outside of Canaan, which we'll, we're going to take a look at. But this was done because when the Israelites would conquer and then settle in the land, they'd have to fight distant cities because they would always have enemies. (laughs) Do we know that as Christ followers, we will always have enemies and there will never be a complete and permanent external peace in our lives. There just won't. There will always be enemies that we must contend with. And that's the thing. People sometimes do a disservice to Christianity, romanticizing it, acting like everything will be better when you follow the Lord. Just accept Jesus and everything will be better. You'll be happy all the time. You'll have joy nonstop. 
And then you leave them, never see them again, and they try this Christianity thing, right? This concept, rather than a faith-based, you know, uh, living out of our lives, or their lives, and they realize this is more difficult than not being a Christian, right? It's difficult. And in the context of what we're looking at tonight, we're not supposed to be at peace with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not supposed to be at peace with those at all. We should be in opposition. We should be a peculiar people, as Peter said in his letter. But we are at war. Therefore, it's critical that we be guarded, be watchful, be prayerful, and be proactive in the faith. So we're going to pray, you guys, and then get into the scripture tonight. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time just to gather together, assemble together in your name, Lord. Uh, we know life is not about us, it's about you. And we just thank you for the truth that you have given us, Lord, in order that you'd be glorified, that your will would be done um, on earth, Lord. We just pray, God, that you'd speak to each of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see, we're going to read verses 1 to 9, and then we'll go through go through the scripture. But Deuteronomy chapter 20 says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when we are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Verse 6, also what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. And what shall is there who is uh, betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. Verse 9, And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So the first thing we see, verse 1 is amazing, it's all amazing, but verse 1 is God's assurance. And so I love, I love Moses did not act like the battle would be easy when they entered Canaan. You know, it's kind of like this, if you were on a football team against the best team in the nation, and you were like one of the bottom <laughs> teams, you know, the coach says, it, you know, it's going to be easy to beat these guys. Just go out there and play. No biggie. Like, then you'll, you're going to play this elite team. You probably get annihilated. Part of preparation is being honest about what and who you are about to face. Like, the people that the Israelites were going to go up against, they had horses and chariots and armies and fortified cities. And remember, 38 years before this time, this moment, 10 out of the 12 spies, again, saw the land, the people, and the obstacles, and the dangers. That's all they saw. They had temporary amnesia in that they did not focus on the promise of God. They focused on the opposition in the land God promised. They let fear make their decision for them. They make their decision to really run away. 
Moses was reminding these guys that, that God had victory over Pharaoh, and he will have victory in Canaan. And there was no need to fear the enemies, for the Lord who drowned a whole Egyptian army, the enemies, would give the Israelites victory in the land they were promised. And so that's the thing, when we doubt God's power, we're given place to fear, which immobilizes our faith. When your car breaks down, it often causes you to be down, right? Because you cannot get to your destination, and now all of a sudden, all these problems. When we're not moving forward, the temptation is to just get frustrated and give up. Some of the most vivid memories and moments in my life that I have were when my car broke down and I was left simply to trust the Lord for the outcome. Like I remember years ago when we were newly married, I was a new Christian too. My, my aunt gave me a Chevy Blazer and I was like, sweet, a free SUV, a free car. This is awesome. It was a black Chevy Blazer, right? And it was old. But, and it was plagued with problems. I didn't know that when I first, I, I would have said yes anyway, because I didn't have any money. But almost every month, something else would go wrong with it. And it got to the point where my second home was on the side of the road and the interstate on the phone calling for a tow truck. It was bad. It was bad. Yet, I'd be broken down on the side of the road just waiting, reading my Bible, praying, occasionally crying, like literally crying, don't tell anyone, crying like a baby out of frustration. I'm like, not again. Yet the Lord even, you know, uses even those moments of frustration to minister to our hearts. The battle may be vicious for the Israelites, as we'll see in Joshua when we get there, yet the Lord would lead the charge, and he has all the power to have the victory. And this is why when we submit and surrender to the Lord, victory will result. You know, God's perfect strength rises to the surface when we lean upon him in our feeble weaknesses. Like, and I love what he says here. Verse 1, do not be afraid. It's, it's an assuring command from the Lord to his people. He doesn't say, well, if you feel like, if you don't feel like fearing, don't fear. He's like, it's a command, do not fear. The Lord told some of the godliest people to not fear, like Abraham, Joshua, Paul, the apostle. Why would he tell these godly men to not fear? Because they feared in certain situations that they were about to walk into. And take these words to heart, for they are true. Like it, and it is useless to fall into fear, and it really results in just sinking into despair. Do not fear. I was reading, actually, this morning, I like history, Theodore Roosevelt, he was about to give this speech, and when a gunman emerged from the crowd and uh, shot him in the chest, just poof, shot him in the chest. Roosevelt, he was an avid hunter, and an adventurer, and surmised that because he wasn't spitting up blood, he wouldn't, he wouldn't die. He would live. So he proceeded to give his speech in its entirety. He gave his whole speech with a bullet in his chest. And when he was done, he went to see a doctor who said, oh, it's more dangerous to take the bullet out than to keep it in. So he lived with this bullet in his chest the rest of his life. He wasn't afraid. Do not fear. And you know, 90% of the hypotheticals that people fear do not even happen. What a waste of life. So skip the fear, walk by faith. And so now in verses 2 to 4, we, see, we saw the encouragement from the priests. Now this wasn't the high priest addressing the army, but it was a priest who was verbally encouraging the army because this wasn't going to be a battle of just flesh and blood. And this was going to be a battle, a spiritual battle, like a holy war, if you will. 
And see, not only were the Israelites going to take the land God promised them, they were going to fight against a people group who rebelled against God continually. They were evil. The Lord gave them so many chances to repent, yet they refused to. And when one refuses to repent, they run the risk of living life uh, of habitual sin and making excuses for a carnal lifestyle. You know, John the baptizer and Jesus, remember when they came on the scene, the first thing they said was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Repent means change your mind. It means change direction. It means change of heart. Turn away from sin. Run towards God and don't look back. You know why Jesus healed the ear after, uh, the, after Peter cut off Malchus's ear? Remember that when Jesus was betrayed? Well, because this assault was like a capital crime, and so Peter could have been put to death for it. Yet Jesus healed the ear of his enemy, so it's as if the transgression of Peter never actually happened. So Peter would live. So the Lord, you know, he looks at believers and does not see their transgression. Justification means just as if I've never sinned, you've never sinned. And that is what Jesus has done for us. So that that transgression wouldn't be held against us. His blood covers our transgressions and forgives us of our sins. So the Lord uses people to inflict judgment upon God's enemies. And, And practically speaking, when confronting enemies of the faith... We need to hear over and over the words again, fear not. Fear not. The Lord told Abraham to fear not when God was helping him defeat kings, and to Jacob when he left home for Egypt. And Moses gave the message to fear not to the Jews when they were standing at the Red Sea. Isaiah used this phrase a handful of times to encourage the people. The phrase, fear not, is stated 205 times throughout the Bible, seven times in the Gospel of Luke that we're going through on Sunday. Because when you keep your eyes on the Lord, he will, he will give peace, not fear. Fear is not of the Lord. And oftentimes the fact that God is great and powerful, it only comes to our minds when we're, when we're kind of in over our heads. Like when we are facing situations that we do not feel like we are equipped at all for, and like there's no way we can handle it. Like I can't, sometimes, you know, oftentimes we're like, I can't handle it. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know. We've all been there. It's, we're human. This is where our trust in the Lord, though, needs to be activated like never before. So the priests were like, guys, the Lord led you out of Egypt. Remember that huge epic thing that happened? He's also going to lead you into the promised land. He led you out of Egypt. He's going to lead you into the promised land. God's led us out of the world, you know, into his family, and he's going to lead us in to a future and hope in heaven. Like, he always leads us out of and then into. And then there, were, there was encouragement from the priest because it was a spiritual battle, but now there's encouragement from the officers in verse 5 to 9. And so the priest encouraged the people, but the officers encouraged the people to go back home if they had business to take care of, practically. No soldier should be fighting with distractions or unfinished business at home. So there were a few reasons men were exempt from fighting in this instance. Those who had not yet finished building their house, those who haven't eaten of their vineyard yet, and those who were engaged but not married. And I love this because essentially the Lord didn't want the men neglecting their personal issues, their life issues, their home issues. Like, in other words, get your priorities straight. You know, in other words, your unfinished personal matters should take precedent over fighting right now because you have things to take care of at home. Get those things done, and they get out on the battlefield. 
I've known some Christians, though, who use this, unfortunately, as an excuse to never fight for the faith at all and never get on the battlefield, the world, and God's mission for them. There's always something that stops them from getting in the battle. And the Lord brings conviction, yet it's ignored. Think about David and Bathsheba. He sinned with Bathsheba because he should have been with his men in battle. Instead, he sat that battle out and resulted in adultery and murder. There's a time to get family stuff done, yes. And, and there's also a time to get in the battle with others in the faith. But these things listed, they were, they were justified. They were justified if left undone. They had an out to get these things taken care of. Also, if the soldiers feared being in the battle, they'd pull the rest of the men down. They didn't want anyone fighting who were totally timid and fearful and spread because that fear would spread throughout the men, and then it would, wouldn't be boldness, it would be timidity. You know, it was fear and it was unbelief that led to Israel's failure at Kadesh in Numbers 13 and 14. So once these soldiers were thinned out, then they'd assign them a rank. And in battle, courage and faith are important, but so is organization and authority. God is a God of decency and order, not chaos and destruction. Yes, we're led by the Holy Spirit. At the same time, we plan and prepare as the Lord leads. And so what happens? Well, we're going to see victory. In verse 10, as we continue on, it says, When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an officer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into their hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, like foreign cities on the outskirts of Canaan. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and sin against the Lord your God. Verse 19, when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the tree which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. So in verses 10 to verse 18, we see the victory over a city. And the Lord had said to have no mercy when it came to the Canaanite cities because they were so evil, they were so dark, and they were so wicked. They were to take out all the altars, the temples, the high places that were engaging in dark practices, take them out, destroy them completely. But when they fought with cities on the outside of the inheritance, the officers were to offer terms of peace first. If they accepted the terms of peace, everyone was spared, and, and they would live according to the law of God. The enemies would have to pay tax, and they'd have to work in the land under the Israelites, but they and their families would live in peace. 
If these foreign cities refused to surrender, the army would besiege the city, the males in the city would be killed, and they let the women and children live in the land, and they would take the spoils. And the city would be divided among the soldiers. The parallel here is that, yes, we are fighting for the faith every day, but also we are called to be ambassadors for the Lord. We, we are called to be peacemakers, which is what Jesus said to the, in the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if Jesus said, blessed are the troublemakers, Christianity would look a lot different, right? In fact, I think there are some Christians who think that this is their role, you know, to provoke others, debate, argue, fight, make people believe as if it's somehow up to them. It's not how it works. Remember, Jesus brought a message of peace to his own people, and still they rejected him, right? They, because of unbelief, he couldn't minister. There wasn't many mighty works in his city. Jesus announced judgment, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem eventually and a scattered people. So to obey, you just follow a command. Like in Deuteronomy, Old Testament, you obey. Okay, do what God says. I'm going to do what he says. Yet, you think about the word honor. It means you follow even if there's not a command. Under the new covenant, we honor and revere God no matter what he said, because he's God. Like, he also gives us commands and leads us from his word through prayer and through prayer, but also we revere and honor him because of who he is over what he's, over what he's done, who he is. When we truly fear and revere the Lord, it helps us to resist temptation that much more because we actually take God seriously. Because we understand the vast power of our Lord. We understand our main aim in this life is not to please people, it's to please the Lord, to further his kingdom. Life is not about us. <laughs> Preaching ourselves and building an empire and having our identity and what we have or who we are. Our goal is to have our identity in Christ so people see him and not us. When you talk about leaving a legacy, it shouldn't be leaving a legacy with me and my family. It should be leaving a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. I want them to remember Jesus. We want them to remember the gospel over who we were. It doesn't even matter. Like We want to make ourselves invisible and him visible. We want to, that's why it talks about, the, the Psalms talk about magnifying the Lord. What does a magnifying glass do? It makes things bigger so you can see, right? And it's like we want to make God you know, big to people. And really, if he's sovereign and almighty in our own hearts, then we're going to revere him. If we have a small God, if we have a God that can just do, if he's limited, then we're not really going to revere him or fear him. We're just going to be like, ah, casual when it comes to the Christian life. And we shouldn't be casual when it comes to the Christian life. So our goal is to have our identity in Christ so people see him and not us. Leaving a legacy for the gospel, for the truth. Uh, and so, and the last couple of verses actually, we're talking about like natural resources. Uh, Israel was not to waste natural resources in their own lands, is what, is what this is saying. Like, yeah, victory over enemies, it was important, but well, so was preserving and taking care of the land, being good stewards, just like Adam and Eve had to do in the beginning. That the work wasn't a result of the, oh, we get the curse, sin entered the world, they messed up, now we have to work. They had to take care of the land before that. The fruit trees were to stay alive and not be cut down, like it says here. So too, as we are connected to the vine, who is Jesus, John 15, so, you know, we're connected to the vine so the fruit would be born out of our lives. Israel was not to practice what was called, it was called desolation warfare. Desolation warfare. 
They were to preserve what was useful instead of just going in for total and just having total destruction, just taking it all out when it comes to creation. Uh, you probably heard of this, but a rage room, also known as a smash room, also known as an anger room, started in Japan in the early 2000s. These rooms include things like furnishings, uh, desks, TVs, items that you can just take a bat or a weapon to and just smash it, right? You put this protective gear on, these goggles, a helmet, all this stuff, and you just smash it and go crazy, let your anger out. What they found out, of course, is that these rage rooms produced airborne particles such as toxic chemicals, mercury, and old, you know, and old electronics, and lead. And so some high-risk items in rage rooms are fluorescent bulbs, batteries, and TV screens. People actually got injured for these things. But, but the, so the Israelites were not to practice desolation warfare, just destroy all the trees, all the stuff, you know, when they went into the cities. They, they weren't to do what other nations did. That's kind of the point. He, you know, because God is distinct. God is holy. God is set apart. His people were distinct. He, you know, they were called to be holy as he is holy. They're supposed to be set apart. Although there was a battle that would be fought, still it was about being a witness to other nations, even though there was a battle to be fought. You know, although we face, you know, as a litany of difficulties, still we're called to be lights even when we are navigating through dark times, especially when we're navigating through the valley times. I recently read it, uh, you know, the trials of Joseph, you know, went through, where most of us are familiar with a lot of those, but it's hard for me to even comprehend the intensity and the severity of the trials that Joseph faced. It's unreal, but it happened, but it's real. And being favored by his dad, being betrayed by his brothers, being sold into slavery by his brothers, being falsely accused by Pharaoh's wife, going to prison. I mean, his story is one that we look at and go, wow, my trials are kind of nothing compared to Joseph. Yeah, I used to watch a show called Cops. You guys ever used to watch that show Cops? I used to watch the show Cops a lot, and, and part of the reason was it made me feel really good about my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, no matter what I was going through, I'd watch it. And I, I used to think things like, well, at least I'm not, you know, hooked on meth, stealing cards, and cussing at the cops, getting, going to prison. Like, I mean, it was bad. See, we have, we will, and we will continue to go through hardships as soldiers of Jesus Christ. We will go through hard times. And oftentimes, we will get in trouble for not doing the wrong thing. We're going to get in trouble for doing the right thing, which is a godly thing. And that's okay. We're not seeking to attain approval by the world or by others anyway. We, you know, we are living to please the Lord, and, and when we're saved, we entered into a spiritual battle. The octagon. You know, we entered into the octagon. The enemy who is leaving us alone in our sin, because when we're, we were in our sin, the enemy's like, oh, they're totally in the darkness anyway. I don't have to mess with them. Now, as we're saved, he has eyes upon us, trying to pull us down, lure us away from the truth that set us free. He's trying to lure us back to Egypt, <laughs> back to slavery of the world. You know, and so what do we have to do? We have to resist him. Do not be afraid. We have to revere the Lord. We have to cling to the precepts of the Lord because his plan for you is faultless. Even if you say, mm, no, it's faultless. It amazes me often that God uses faulty people, all of us, to get and accomplish his faultless plan done. His, his plan is faultless. We are the ones that are faulty. Uh, the people get mixed, around, mixed up sometimes, and they blame God for all the things that are going bad in their life. But oftentimes, the things that are going bad in our life, they're our fault. Or because we're in a fallen world. 
But it's only because of his grace that he uses us. We don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve to be used by God. We don't even deserve to be alive tonight. It's all because of his grace. It's all because of his mercy. You know, this last year when I was, when I was elected coach of my, my girls' baseball team, because there was no one else who signed up for it. I signed up for an assistant coach, and I went to the first meeting, and uh, one of the assistant coaches was like, oh, hey, Pastor Mike, you're the coach of the team. Huh? That's awesome. I'm like, what? I had no clue, and so I went to the, the lady that runs it, and I'm like, this says I'm the coach. They're like, yeah, no one else volunteered, so we made you the coach. I was like, okay. But almost every play when the kids were in the outfield, we would yell at them, be baseball ready. Be baseball ready, meaning get ready because the opposing team may hit a ball out to you, so you need to get ready to field it, to throw it to the base that it needs to be thrown to. You need to be ready. Because, I mean, some of these kids are kind of like, oh, look, birds, you know, or like, oh, look at that, what's going on, oh, hey, mom and dad, you know, and so someone's about to be up to bat, it's like, be baseball, they had to constantly be told, look forward, look what's going on, where's the ball, look that way. Be ready, we're called to be battle ready, because, yeah, life is a battle. Ephesians 6, 12, and 13 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So take up the whole armor of God that you may withstand the enemy and stand firm in the faith. So again, again, Moses was, was being led by the Lord, was preparing his people to enter the land. And the facts weren't sugar-coated or softened. Rather, to be prepared, we must be honest about what may lie ahead. There may be trials that are more difficult than anything we've ever faced. Yet the Lord is so faithful to, to help us through those things. And when they happen, He's so faithful to comfort us with His promises in those things. We can fully trust the Lord. Because he's fully capable of strengthening us, equipping us, and getting us ready for the next season and whatever comes next. We don't even know. We can pray, we can plan, but it's up to the Lord. It's not up to us. We just get our marching orders from him. And sometimes he's like, it's clear, and we're like, we're going forward. Other times it's like, he said, no, I'm staying here. Other times he said, just wait. Have patience. Learn these things. And when I say go, that's when you're going to go. Because the more we lean upon the Lord, the more he's going to hold us up. If we're trying to do it ourselves and strive, you know, and be like, oh, I'll lean upon the Lord when I get tired, we're going to get lost. I mean, we're going to be confused. We're going to be out of his will. But if we just completely fall upon him, trust fall, right, and just fall and just let him just drag me to the next thing. Lord, just leaning upon him with our whole weight, with all of who we are. And when we do that, he's going to give us all we need for our good and for his glory. 